This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. We have an excellent program for you today. We're doing something different for this episode by focusing on historical and preservation societies and getting a better understanding of why and how these organizations began, what value they are to society and our communities, why they're valuable in today's world, and why we can feel good about volunteering and supporting them. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks the internationally syndicated original talk program on MicroStream Radio, where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, historical and genealogical societies across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. Many of our listeners listen to the program while driving in the car. If you're listening and you'd like to be a guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. All right, that being said, let's get this show snapping. Our historical May events for this episode. Happy birthday to Irish-born American labor leader Mary Mother Jones, who lived from 1830 to 1930. She was born in County Cork, Ireland. She endured misfortune early in life as her husband and four children died in the yellow fever epidemic of 1867. She also lost all of her belongings in the Chicago Fire in 1871. She then devoted herself to organizing and advancing the cause of labor using the slogan, Join the Union, Boys! She also sought to prohibit child labor. She remained active until the very end, giving her last speech on her 100th birthday. In our Did You Also Know file, we have two entries. Happy birthday on May 1st to Mr. Archie Williams. Now you've all heard of our American athlete Jesse Owens, but have you ever heard of another athlete that participated with Jesse in the 1936 Olympics? Well, let me tell you all about African-American Olympic athlete Archie Williams. He was born in Oakland, California in 1915 and lived until 1993. Mr. Archie Williams, along with Jesse Owens, defeated German athletes at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. He won a gold medal in the 400-meter race. 
After the Olympics, he went on to earn a mechanical engineering degree from the University of California, Berkeley. He later became an airplane pilot and trained Tuskegee Institute pilots, including the Black Air Corps of World War II. The second one in this file today, you've all heard of the Great Depression and how it began on Black Tuesday in October of 1929 with the great stock market crash, right? Well, did you also know that on May 5th, 1893, the Wall Street crash of 1893 began as stock prices fell dramatically? By the end of that year, 600 banks closed and several big railroads were in receivership. Another 15,000 businesses went bankrupt amid 20% unemployment. It was the worst economic crisis in U.S. history up to that time. On May 5, 1865, Decoration Day was first observed in the United States, with the tradition of decorating soldiers' graves from the Civil War with flowers. The observance date was later moved to May 30th and included American graves from World War I and World War II and became better known as Memorial Day. In 1971, Congress moved Memorial Day to the last Monday in May, thus creating a three-day holiday weekend. On May 7, 1992, the 27th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified, prohibiting Congress from giving itself pay raises. On May 10, 1869, the newly constructed tracks of the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railways were first linked at Promontory Point, Utah. A golden spike was driven by Leland Stanford, president of the Central Pacific, to celebrate the linkage. It's said that he missed the spike on his first swing, which brought roars of laughter from men who had driven thousands upon thousands of spikes themselves. On May 14, 1796, smallpox vaccine was developed by Dr. Edward Jenner, a physician in rural England. He coined the term vaccination for the new procedure of injecting a milder form of the disease into healthy people, resulting in immunity. Within 18 months, 12,000 persons in England had been vaccinated and the number of smallpox deaths dropped by two-thirds. On May 17, 1792, two dozen merchants and brokers established the New York Stock Exchange. In good weather, they operated under a buttonwood tree on Wall Street. In bad weather, they moved inside to a coffee house to conduct business. On May 17, 1954, in Brown v. Board of Education, the United States Supreme Court unanimously ruled that segregation of public schools solely on the basis of race denied black children equal educational opportunity, even though physical facilities and other tangible factors may have been equal. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Thurgood Marshall had argued the case before the court. He went to become the first African-American appointed to the Supreme Court. On May 20, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act, opening millions of acres of government-owned land in the West to homesteaders who could acquire up to 160 acres by living on the land and cultivating it for five years, paying just $1.25 per acre. On May 22, 1972, President Richard Nixon became the first American president to visit Moscow. Four days later, Nixon and Soviet Russia's leader, Leonid Brezhnev, 
signed a pact pledging to freeze nuclear arsenals at current levels. On May 24, 1844, telegraph inventor Samuel Morse sent the first official telegraph message. It was, What hath God wrought? He sent it from the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. to Baltimore. On May 25, 1787, the Constitutional Convention began in Philadelphia with delegates from seven states forming a quorum. On May 27, 1937, in San Francisco, 200,000 people celebrated the grand opening of the Golden Gate Bridge by strolling across it. That was May 27, 1937. I think we're probably going to need a new bridge pretty soon. On May 30, 1783, the Pennsylvania Evening Post became the first daily newspaper published in America. On May 31, 1889, over 2,300 people were killed in the Johnstown flood in Pennsylvania. Heavy rains throughout May caused the Conema River Dam to burst, sending a wall of water 75 feet high pouring down upon the city. Hey, I want to thank you to thehistoryplace.com for our May events. Let's drink some tea, some Twining's tea. I love Twining's tea. And now I'm going to talk about the history of historical and preservation societies in the United States. We at Preservation Oaks are passionate about history. The inventiveness of this country, the innovative breakthroughs in knowledge, education, medical arts, and technology that have happened here in the United States decade after decade, and that have changed the world. Why did they happen here? Well, one of the reasons is that among our valued liberties in this country is the freedom to think and speak for ourselves. This country is governed differently than any other country in the world. Here in the United States, the people are in charge. We the people own our government and not the other way around. From the earliest days, people of all kinds from all over the world have come here for freedom. We impart to our children democracy, freedom, and tolerance, civic discourse, and the rule of law. We teach our children these same values and principles that stemmed from our founding. This is the only place in the world where people have identified with an idea, values, and principles which must be preserved and protected. The early founders stated that without the aid of authentic documents and objects and education stemming from these, history is nothing more than a well-combined series of ingenious conjectures and amusing fables. A historical society doesn't just have to be about the history that occurred long before we were alive. It's also about current history. How do you gather, protect, and teach history? The best way most societies have found is to tell stories about the people of this country, the events and the objects of history. And you know what? Our historical and preservation societies across the United States are unlimited repositories of great stories about the past. Each organization is unique to their area and has unique stories and delights. Each area of our country has a strong national and cultural identity, and together these organizations and communities make up the fabric of America. It's true of every unique segment of the American people. People have a hunger to know. Nothing in this country is just handed to us from generation to generation, all in perfect order and running perfectly. We are humans and imperfect. 
It's up to us in each generation to remember our national ideals and values and to teach those in relation to the history of each of our unique areas because each one is important. Every individual American must carry on and improve what we were given and what our ancestors built. It's worth a self-conscious effort to defend and preserve our history, just like America is for all Americans. So what are historical and preservation societies? A historical society, sometimes also named a preservation society, is an organization dedicated to preserving, collecting, researching, and interpreting historical information and objects. These societies were created as a way to help future generations understand and benefit from their heritage and to gather and protect the information of the past. Historical societies vary in specialization, with focuses ranging from specific geographical areas such as counties or towns and cities, universities, railways, ethnic and religious groups, to genealogy, pioneer history, and the preservation of antiques or historic buildings. Often, many of these organizations ensure that historic architecture is preserved and restored and period houses are maintained for tours open to the public. Historical societies continue to practice the same principles that the early societies established, including officer elections, annual meetings, publications, libraries, collections, and record-keeping. Nonprofit voluntary organizations and their leaders, employees, volunteers, and members face a number of complex challenges and questions when it comes to financing their operations, deciding what to include or exclude, and which parts of their history to document. This is an especially difficult process as these organizations strive to balance competing interests while attempting to remain financially viable. The task of determining what should be included and excluded, as well as what history should be documented, is one that requires careful consideration and planning. It's important to ensure that all stakeholders are taken into account in these decisions and that the history of the organization is accurately portrayed. With thoughtful planning and sound decision-making, these organizations can continue to serve their communities and preserve their history. There's only so much money a limitation on storage space to preserve collections properly, and a limited amount of money for hiring staff, training volunteers, conducting outreach and education, and all of the other important things a historical or preservation society needs to do. This is where the volunteers, members, and supporters of the organization come in. The more you donate, the more you help, the better the quality of life is in your communities. So that's what I think historical and preservation societies are. I'd love to hear from you if there's anything you'd like to add. Please email us at preservationoaks at gmail.com. Now let's discuss how historical and preservation societies began. It's said that historical societies originated in Western Europe during the 16th and 17th centuries. These early organizations were usually formed as societies for lovers of antiquity. However, I think that mankind began to collect and share the history and information way earlier than the 16th and 17th centuries. We can look at the famed Library of Alexandria or the Dead Sea Scrolls as examples of people collecting and protecting shared history and information. The Library of Alexandria was created by Alexander the Great in the 3rd century BCE. It was located in Alexandria, Egypt, and was destroyed during war. 
The Dead Sea Scrolls are being protected and kept by a museum in Israel. Back before there was writing, there was only word of mouth, and word of mouth is still being practiced in many cultural peoples, tribes, and cities even unto today in certain parts of the Amazon Basin and Africa. Writing was done on cave walls, clay tablets, stones, and papyri through the ages, but also on metals like gold and silver and copper. If people wanted to teach their children the ways they and their ancestors found to be successful for realizing a full and healthy life for themselves and their community, then they had to either pass it on orally from what they remembered from their ancestors or they had to write it down. For example, they would want to preserve and educate their people about what plants to eat and how to process them so they didn't die. Pretty important, and it's not likely that they just let their children figure that out for themselves after they had already done so. They might save and share recipes for wholesome foods, or a number of other how-to information like how to deal with injuries, or how to farm, how to hunt and fish, how to make war, how to make medicines and care for the sick, or how to make maps, travel, and get safely from point A to point B, or how to worship and how to appease God. Before history could be written and orally passed on, however, there had to be a language created that everybody important knew and understood. Then, there had to be an agreement on how to write the language, which symbols stood for which sounds and concepts. Once written, there also needed to be formal occasions where the information was imparted to the next generation, and that means education and reading. As printers in Europe promoted printing as the art that preserved all other arts, libraries were created to house collections of books. The only problem was that these documents and books became highly coveted and in the hands of private groups, institutions, and governments. They were also quite vulnerable to damage and destruction, and they were expensive to produce and required scribes with specialized skills to get the information written. I started wondering what is the oldest book in the world? And that book is called the Etruscan Gold Book. Nobody knows who wrote it. It was found in Bulgaria, and it's written in Etruscan script. It's believed to be the oldest book in the world, dating back to around 600 BCE. The entire book is made out of 24 karat gold and consists of six sheets bound together, which have illustrations of a horse rider, a mermaid, a harp, and soldiers. The book was found sometime in the late 1950s in a tomb uncovered during digging for a canal along the Stroma River in Bulgaria. From a book written by Alia Henley, rescued from oblivion historical cultures in the early United States, printed by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2020 on pages 105 through 130, it's Chapter 4, Disjointed Fragments, Materials as History versus Materials for History. The early United States held dangers for vulnerable documents as accidental flame, a blocked chimney, or a lightning strike could easily set structures afire, destroying homes, lives, and records. War was another menace. The Revolution and the War of 1812 wrought havoc on documents, including the books in the early Library of Congress. Many documents and records were destroyed in courthouses in the eastern United States during the War of 1812 when they were burned. In addition, water threatened written materials through dramatic floods or the slow growth of mold. 
Water destroyed most of the 1890 U.S. Census records, which were stored in the basement of the old Commerce Building in D.C. So that's the oldest book. Then I asked myself, what was the oldest library in the world? Not the United States, but the world. Turns out that it was the Royal Library of the Ancient Kingdom of Ebla, and it was created circa 2500 through 2250 BCE, and it was in Mardik, Syria. That's M-A-R-D-I-K-H, Syria. It's thought to be the oldest library in the world. The library was discovered and the ruins excavated between 1974 and 1976 by Italian archaeologists. They found about 2,000 complete tablets ranging in size from one inch to over a foot, 4,000 tablet fragments and over 10,000 chips and small fragments. This collection of texts is the largest ever found from the 3rd millennium BCE. Unlike other ancient archives, there is evidence that suggests that the tablets from the Ebla Library were purposefully arranged and even classified. The larger tablets were originally stored on shelves but fell over when the palace was destroyed. Archaeologists were able to reconstruct the tablets' original positions and discovered that they'd been arranged by subject. Additionally, the tablets show evidence of the early transcription of texts into foreign languages and scripts, classification and cataloging for easier retrieval, and arrangement by size, form, and content. And now, in the United States, it seems there are two candidates for the oldest library. The first was purportedly established in 1638 and is the Harvard University Library. It's deemed by some to be the oldest library system in the United States. They currently have 28 libraries, 700 expert staff, 6 million digitized and publicly available items, 20 million books, 1 million maps, and spatial data sets, and 400 million rare items, including letters, photographs, and manuscripts. The second is the Darby Free Library. It's purportedly the oldest library in the United States, built by Quakers in 1743, and it's located in Darby Borough, Delaware County, Pennsylvania. And the oldest historical society in the United States is what is now called the Massachusetts Historical Society, which was founded in 1791 by Jeremy Belknap and nine other Bostonians who helped him create the Historical Society an organization truly devoted to collecting materials for the study of American history. From the book by Alea Henley, which is entitled Rescued from Oblivion, Historical Cultures in the Early United States, printed by University of Massachusetts Press 2020, from the introduction, pages 1 through 8. One of those nine Bostonians was Boston minister John Eliot. Eliot acknowledged the existence of other learned organizations in Boston, not least the Academy of Arts and Sciences, but argued the new society would be different. Rather than encompassing all arts and sciences, the new historical society would, quote, pursue one particular subject, unquote. He and the other founders intended to, quote, confine our attention to this business of collecting things which will illustrate the history of our country, unquote. This like-minded group gathered family papers, books, and artifacts from their personal collections, which led to the creation of the nation's first historical repository. Due to the absence of any other American historical repositories during this time, the Massachusetts Historical Society took on a national role. 
something that is still evident in its collections and publications. To this day, Belknap's original vision of preserving, collecting, making resources accessible, and communicating manuscripts that promote the study of Massachusetts as well as the nation is still thriving. Different historical societies began in different ways, but usually a small group of people laid the foundations for the formal organization. Statement of purpose, organizational meeting, constitution, and bylaws, incorporations, corporate title, requirements, reviewing, recommendations, taxes, legal government oversight requirements, and petitioning are all aspects of the highly involved process of chartering a historical society. During the 19th century, societies were becoming more and more democratic in their membership policies, while large groups of people were still being excluded. However, when the Progressive Era came, these historical societies finally started being seen as institutions with a capacity or obligation to serve the public. There started to become significant growth in the public's interest in local history when the 20th century came around and this was apparent with the overall concern for historic preservation of cities that were going through architectural and demographic changes. In 1940, the increase in this appreciation was reflected once again by the founding of the American Association for State and Local History. Although the accomplishments of only the majority of the population were at the center of the mid-century historical societies, previously neglected groups such as ethnic minorities and women started to gain more attention within the academic circles as society progressed. The history of historical societies in the U.S. has often been responsive to the trends within the discipline of history. However, they haven't always responded to the evolution and changes in the same way and speed. The public inclusion movement is a great example of how the historical societies were sometimes challenged with juggling competing preservation priorities and liberal access policies. And this article from the journal entitled Journal Article Racial Historical Societies and the American Heritage by Charles H. Wesley, Volume 37, Number 1, January 1952, pages 11 through 35 published by the University of Chicago Press. Quote, Historical societies were organized in the United States with the special purposes in view of preserving and maintaining the heritage of the American nation. These societies have been of several types. There were societies with voluntary memberships, of which is the Massachusetts Historical Society, established in 1791, the New York Historical Society, founded in 1804, and the American Antiquarian Society, which held its first meeting in 1812, are significant first steps in the historical society movement. There were societies directly related to the states by authorization and support, of which the Archaeological and Historical Society of Ohio, established in 1831, and the Historical Society of Wisconsin, chartered in 1845, are types. Historical societies of these types were organized prior to the Civil War in every state east of Texas except Delaware. They were organized on the national, regional, state, town, county, philosophical, genealogical, church, and cultural basis. There were others with special objectives such as patriotic and memorial ones associated with the growth of a nation. Interest in the nation's past in the background of the American people caused men and women 
in all sections to undertake organization and action for the preservation and publication of historical records and source materials. By the middle of the 19th century, there were about 30 active societies for the preservation and publication of American history. About 20 were organized between 1850 and 1860, and about the same number in the next decade. During the next quarter, more than 50 were founded. All right, so why preserve and protect our history? Well, here are some comments from more educated and probably more enlightened people than myself. We'll start with this one. Before trying to answer the question, quote, what is the value of a historical society, unquote, it might be well to turn our attention elsewhere to see what our government and the different states are doing in the line of history. In an address before the American Historical Association, composed of several hundred members representing some of the most learned men of the nation, Mr. A. Howard Clark said in regard to, quote, what the United States has done for history, unquote, that the government had, quote, spent more than $2 million in the acquisition and publication of records pertaining alone to our country's history. It has spent many millions more in the erection of historical memorials, in preservation of historical places, and in celebration of historical events, and is annually expending more millions directly in behalf of American history. No nation ever undertook such a magnificent historical work as is now complete under charge of the most efficient bureaus of the War and Navy Department. What are the various states doing in sustaining historical societies? According to the latest report of the American Historical Association, there are now over 300 historical societies. These are distributed all over the United States from Maine to California. Of this number, Massachusetts claims 62, New York 57, and our own state 4. Known as the California Historical Society, San Francisco, Pioneer Association of the Counties of Marin, Napa, Lake, Mendocino, Petaluma, Society of California Pioneers, San Francisco, and the Historical Society of Southern California in Los Angeles. But two of these are really historical societies. A brief outline of the origin of the Historical Society of Southern California may be appropriate here. The idea of organizing a historical society in Southern California was first originated by Judge Noah Levering in 1883. Judge Levering was at that time and had for a number of years been an active member of the Iowa State Historical Society and fully appreciating the value of a historical society to a community began an active canvas for members to found one in his adopted home. His success at first was not encouraging, but by persevering, he at length secured enough names to warrant him in making a call of a meeting for the purpose of organizing. The first meeting appointed at the State Normal Building was not a success. Only four people attended. The next meeting held in the City Courtroom Temple Block was more successful. A number of citizens were present and enrolled themselves members of the society. Colonel J.J. Wagner was elected president and Major C.N. Wilson secretary. The society at first grew quite rapidly. It was something new, was popular, and a number joined only to fall off when they found that to maintain a historical society required hard work and constant outlay, 
and that there was no individual return except the satisfaction of having labored for the general good of the community. The actual local value of our society to the community in which it is located cannot be estimated in dollars and cents. In the 13 years of its existence, it has published nearly 1,000 pages of original historical and scientific matter. Its publications have been widely circulated. They found their way into the libraries of the leading historical, scientific, and geographical societies and into the libraries of the principal colleges and universities of the United States. In addition to these, we've received requests for them from colleges and individuals in Europe, Australia, and Canada. The influence of our publications in directing attention to Southern California has no doubt been much greater than even its members are aware. This influence has been exerted upon the intelligent and educated, independent of any pecuniary profit that may accrue to the community or the individual, is the educational influence that such a society exerts. Every year the value of the study of history is more and more recognized by our leading educational institutions. To the published works of the local historical societies, institutions, and individual historians must look for valuable aid in historical work. Although history is defined as the record of consecutive public events, yet there are many departments in literature that contribute to its value. Annals, chronicles, biographies, autobiographies, travels, the daily press all furnish materials for the historian. We have passed the primitive period of mentality when printed matter is accepted as authoritative unless verified by some other testimony or some other than cold type authority, even if the matter does prima facie appear plausible. We know that many valuable facts are surrounded by an accumulation of unreliable statements, and here is where a wide-awake society can help posterity by winnowing out the chaff and revealing the wheat by eliminating fiction from truth. This should be done with much of the current printed material gathered for historical work. This means work, and hard work, for it can only be done by comparing records, tracing events, and following out sequences. Our society contains people who are qualified for such a task, and we have valuable records, but the difficulty of consulting these records holds much of this work in abeyance. Shall we wait until those who are qualified to discern the truth from the false in the history of past events are no longer with us? There is a good deal of historical data existing in the memory of our oldest citizens and pioneers. Many valuable historical events are remembered by our Spanish and Mexican citizens, and some of our members are sufficiently versed in the Spanish language to bring us reminiscences of our oldest inhabitants, and many of our pioneers remember the inception and early growth of events that are now culminating around us. What a rich field for historical data is before us. Think of Massachusetts with 62 historical societies. While only one incorporated historical society exists in Southern California, and that one is allowed to suffer for want of means. Then we have abundant material for history and plenty of work for a historical society. Compare the limited amount of historical data not already written up in the older stage, which are able to maintain half a hundred societies with the opportunities for collating history in Southern California. Our local history furnishes us with unusual and interesting events. The landing of the Spanish navigators, the founding of the missions by the fathers, 
the growth of Southern California during the Mexican regime, the finding of gold and the wild rush to California from all parts of the world, and finally the influx of people from all parts of the United States to California, furnish eras full of historical data. But aside from this society, the general impression seems to prevail that the history of Southern California is of no value outside the missions. This shows how we as a people sacrifice that which is equally important in the interest of aesthetic. I would not be understood as disparaging the study of the missions. No history would be complete without them, but would wish to be understood as in favor of granting to that era of our history only its due proportion of study as one of the most important subdivisions of our many-sided history. Few societies have labored under greater disadvantages as a society than the historical society of Southern California. For a time, its accumulation of books, papers, letters, curios, and so forth were stored in the state normal school building in Los Angeles, but were eventually crowded out to make more room for the school. The county supervisors allowed us the use of a large room in the fourth story of the courthouse. But finally, that room was needed by the county, and the society's valuable accumulations were conveyed to a gallery of one of the courtrooms, where they are now stored away. I use the term stored advisedly, for the accumulations exceed the space and the cases necessary for any display or for reference. The wealth of material and the interesting and valuable annals yearly distributed by the society show unusual activity for the size of its membership and all this under the most discouraging circumstances. For what is there to encourage the collating of facts if their preservation is not secured? You see, we need a headquarters, fully equipped with suitable cases and drawers. To do this, money is necessary. There's an abundance of means in Southern California where we all as interested in the history of our state as we are in its prosperity commercially. The intellectual activity of any people is shown by its interest in whatever pertains to its origin and growth of events, for every generation is a constituent part of a consecutive series of events from anterior times. The political and economic problems of today are the developments of earlier problems and the issues of the present are laying the foundation for future social problems. Is history of no importance to us? It must be said, however, that our population here is very largely made up of immigrants from other states. They have come with little or no knowledge relative to our local history. Their interests have been centered elsewhere. Our history does not appeal to them until they have become identified with that history. It takes time to do this. A place of meeting is, at the present, a question of vital importance. For some years, the Society held monthly meetings at the old City Hall on 2nd Street, but here the exigences of commerce and change of ownership of the buildings have crowded us out. So we held our meetings in the office of the police judge. The environment was not sufficiently attractive to add to and retain other than historical students too much in love with the work to be critical of the surroundings. A place of meeting that could also be a headquarters for our wealth of historical material is a desideratum just now. With every cycle of time, the value of the consecutive records of the public events becomes greater. And in the light of such a fact, it's not surprising that a society formed for the purpose of collating and preserving history should be hampered for means. 
It may be said that an individual interested in the history of our section can work outside of a society. This is true, but it's an exception, not the rule. As a rule, we need the cooperation of others interested in the same line of work, for collectively, one dozen men and women can accomplish greater results than would be possible where individuals are not spurred on by the formation of a society and the association of others interested in the same pursuit. In the political and commercial world, we find parties, clubs, and companies are formed for the accomplishment of certain objects possible only by combined efforts. For this reason also, clubs are formed for the discussion and advancement of economic, socialistic, educational, and philanthropic aims. There's an inspiration in meeting with other workers in the same pursuit. New lines of investigations are presented and fallacies are corrected. We know this has often been proven in our historical society for the discussion of papers prepared and read before the society has often brought other points to bear upon the subject and corrected fallacies that had crept in without the knowledge of the writer. Why a historical society instead of some other form of literary organization may be briefly stated. There is an inspiration in working with others, and more is accomplished. Persons not directly interested may become so by hearing papers read upon the subject, and many can help by becoming members and contributing toward the funds of the society, in this way increasing historical literature. A historical society can collect and collate valuable papers that would not be offered to individuals as gifts, for the traditions and historical curios of a family are better preserved in the archives and museum of a responsible society than if left without a custodian. Fallacies in current history can be corrected by members competent to do so. It can be something more than a buoy. If it is a strong society, it can be like a pier or projecting wharf, a landing place for the ships of time to unload some of their cargo before they pass into the ocean of obscurity. This was from a speech given by Mrs. M. Burton Williamson on October 12, 1896, entitled, The Value of a Historical Society. I take from this that persevering is key. To those of you who are contemplating founding a historical or preservation society in your community, please do so. Mindful of the facts presented in this speech, there are setbacks. It takes money. It takes community support and time. For those who can identify with the challenges mentioned in this speech, please keep motivated by the support you're receiving from your community and volunteers. It's well worth your time to gather, protect, and tell the story of your unique slice of our United States. The good you do for the community, to quote Mrs. M. Burton Williamson, quote, cannot be estimated in dollars and cents, unquote. I waited until the end of the speech to let listeners know that the speech was given in 1896. Did you catch the concern over misinformation, only not about the postings on the internet like today, but rather the publications and newspapers of that time? Mrs. M. Burton Williamson summed up some of the reasons she recognized to preserve and protect our history. She mentioned the value of using the collected history for education to publish works after the information had been vetted to, quote, eliminate fiction from truth, unquote. She further stated that while this is a role for a historical society, we should not wait 
for a, quote, qualified person to do it, but rather it is incumbent upon every citizen of the country to do this for themselves, unquote. She mentioned that historical societies become the place where people turn to complete research because these wonderful organizations have invested time and effort into finding, documenting, and sharing the truth of their history, including the value of completing oral interviews with the elders of our society because they have valuable reminiscences that give us added insights into the truth of our history. While she does mention several challenges from 1896 that still exist today for historical societies, she also mentions that a historical society must be excellent communicators. They must have storage space to hold historic materials and protect them, a good headquarters where education can be shared, and as mentioned before, that it takes money, and most importantly, the dedication and commitment of the community. Among the excellent information she provided from 1896, she also stated something that I think is as old as time itself. And that's her statement that, quote, the intellectual activity of any people is shown by its interest in whatever pertains to its origin and growth of events. For every generation is a constituent part of a consecutive series of events from anterior times. The political and economic problems of today are the developments of earlier problems, and the issues of the present are laying the foundation for future social problems, unquote. I find that statement very interesting and wise. Now let's move on. We'll be right back to Preservation Oaks with Sean Thomas Radcliffe after these important messages. This program will now pause for universal identification. I'd like to talk about volunteering, especially as a way to help your growing family. As we all know, there are a million things to accomplish and only 24 hours a day to do so. Many people have no idea how to find time to commit to their local museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society. But it's a valuable investment in the community and your family on many levels, and something that you'll need to make work to realize the benefits. Why does it matter to you personally to get involved in your community? Well, if you're a business leader, it's important to keep your finger on the pulse of the local business community. By doing so, you not only do your part to support local causes, but also stay aware of opportunities to grow your company. While there are a variety of ways to accomplish this, including social media, newspapers, television, social circles and networking, there is no better way than to build relationships by engaging yourself in these valuable organizations within the community. However, if you're raising a family and seeking to train your kids in the life lesson, quote, to do well for your community by doing good, unquote, then it's imperative to immerse yourself and your family in helping the community and having fun while doing so. Maybe you've wondered, How can I volunteer in my community, but still have a lot of fun? 
If so, being a volunteer at a museum, cultural, historical, or genealogical society could be for you. You'll find great opportunities to work with children in order to pass on knowledge and history. Not only do you get to teach the next generation of kids some valuable life skills and information, but you also get to enjoy the activities while teaching them. Volunteers typically help guide visitors, answer questions, answer phones, perform research, help file, work with children, and a huge number of other things that keep the society running smoothly. You also get to attend the events and learn more about your community so that you can pass this on to your family and friends. Your family will get a sense of belonging, a sense of place. For those who say they don't have time to volunteer, time is secondary. People with a family and other obligations can generally give just a few hours a week. You don't have to volunteer for hours and hours of time. You can start by micro-volunteering with a shift between one to two hours. These societies host a variety of fun activities to bring members and non-members together. These organizations are non-profit organizations, meaning that they have very few staff members on the payroll and rely on volunteers to assist with the rest of their activities. There are always things to do, and if you strike up a conversation with any of them, they'll be happy to help you find something that you will love doing and that helps your family and community. It's an exalted feeling to volunteer your talent, plus the people you spend your time with and the experiences you gain are invaluable. There are literally thousands of people from all walks of life who volunteer their time, energy and resources to museums, cultural, historical and genealogical societies all across the country. If you enjoy books and quiet, the research library is the perfect place for you to volunteer. You will get to organize books and perform research tasks to help others document their lineage. You can be involved in digitizing records and photographs. You can enter records into a database or help the curator. These societies can offer many different activities for you to engage and help by doing something you love. Museums, cultural, historical, and genealogical societies generally work closely with community members, schools, and businesses. They often host events and fundraisers to bring information to the public and improve the success of the area. You can help improve your community by giving back to these organizations that make your community a better place to live. One of the most beneficial and perhaps underrated perks of starting your volunteer journey is the example it sets for those around you. Within your circle, volunteering is phenomenal for the wellness of your community, as you're demonstrating that helping is a core value. From your family members and friends to anyone else in your circle, your efforts to make the time and commit to your community won't go unnoticed. They will set a positive tone in your circle and instill a sense of direction throughout their lives because they will be at the heart of the community. Please consider volunteering with your family today. You'll be glad you did. This is Laura Weber. Executive Director of the Alabama Agricultural Museum at Landmark Park in Dothan, Alabama. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. This is Derek Scott, President of the Chilton County Historical Society, located in Clanton, Alabama. And I enjoy being a guest on Preservation Oaks with Sean Radcliffe. This is Brandon Brown, Executive Director of the Kiowa County Historical Museum in Soda Fountain. And I love listening to Sean Thomas Radcliffe on MicroStream Radio. Nine out of ten archivists agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet.
Welcome back. Thanks for listening. And now let's continue with our deep dive, taking a look at the history and value of historical societies. And then we have this, excerpts from an article written by Richard M. Ketchum in November of 1991, Volume 42, Issue 7, Number 57396, located at AmericanHeritage.com. It's entitled, Memory as History. Seeking the truth of an event in the memories of the people who lived it can be a maddening task and an exhilarating one. All right, here we go with excerpts from Memory as History. The chords of memory may be mystic, as Abraham Lincoln described them, but how accurate and reliable they are as evidence is a dilemma every historian must face. From the time Herodotus walked through Asia Minor 2,000 years ago asking questions, tapping the recollections of hundreds of eyewitnesses, historians have depended on the retentive faculty of the human mind for information about the past, and they have learned that such reliance has its minuses as well as pluses. I first encountered the negative side of how much to lean on an eyewitness's memory when I was doing research for the book Decisive Day about the battle for Bunker Hill. Considering the number of people who saw that 1775 engagement as either participants or onlookers, most of the latter on the housetops of Boston, a mere third of a mile away, it's astonishing that so few credible contemporary accounts have survived. The best of these are British. From the American side, one of the most complete chronicles is a document prepared shortly after the battle by three clergymen and submitted to the Massachusetts Committee of Safety for transmittal to Great Britain, obviously for the propaganda impact it would have. But this is not what you'd call a historian's delight, since the young pastor who did most of the writing saw only snatches of the engagement from an unsatisfactory vantage point on the Malden side of the Mystic River. Given these circumstances, it was essential to look to other sources, and one that appeared promising at first blush demonstrates the potential risk of depending on memory. In 1825, 50 years after the battle, when the cornerstone of the Bunker Hill Monument was laid, some 190 survivors of the Revolutionary Army attended the festivities. Of these, 40 had been, or claimed to have been, present on the fateful 17th of June, 1775, when the British stormed the Rebel Redoubt. The directors of the Monument Association, hoping to obtain a full picture of the events of that day and clear up disputed points about what happened, decided to tap this load by collecting depositions from the battle veterans. For reasons that are unclear, the results lay fallow for 17 years. Then in 1842, three volumes containing these depositions were donated to the Massachusetts Historical Society, and a committee of three was appointed to report on the nature and historical value of the acquisition. The committee's findings were dispiriting, to say the least, so much so that the volumes were ordered sealed and, quote, deposited in the cabinet as curiosities, unquote. The explanation given for such short shrift appeared in a report by the historian George Ellis, a committee member who had examined the testimonials with care. His remarks are worth quoting. The contents of the three books, he observed with a mixture of shock and anger, were, quote, most extraordinary, 
many of the testimonies extravagant boastful inconsistent and utterly untrue mixtures of old men's broken memories and fond imaginings with the love of the marvelous some of those who gave affidavits about the battle could not have been in it nor even in its neighborhood they had got so used to telling the story for the wonderment of village listeners as grandfather's tales and as petted representatives of the spirit of 76 that they did not distinguish between what they had seen and done and what they had read heard or dreamed the decision of the committee was that much of the contents of the volumes was wholly worthless for history and some of it discreditable as misleading and false happily not all old men's memories were knit from the same yarn as those of the bunker hill veterans after all what inspired bruce catton to the writing of history was listening to men to whom nothing but memories mattered anymore in his hometown of benzonia michigan as he put it i began my work on the civil war by trying to figure out what made the old veterans tick when they were young men it was as simple as that mind you he did not say the men's memories were flawed only that the former soldiers were living in the past Every normal person knows some history, Carl Becker observed, and he defined his chosen discipline by stating, History is the memory of things said and done. What makes it worth recording, he argued, is the way the pattern of remembered events that constitute history enlarges and encircles the present. Some while ago I found myself relying heavily on the memories of my own contemporaries and elders while gathering material for a book. Off and on, over a period of 18 years, I interviewed, usually in person, but also through correspondence, survivors of the Depression and pre-World War II period for what became the borrowed years 1938 through 1941, America on the way to war. These recollections were, of course, supplemented by a broad spectrum of other original source materials, but nothing else had quite the same quality of spontaneity or surprise the potential to reveal personality as the information that emerged from conversations with participants in the events of that critical period. As Robin Winks, author of The Historian as Detective, writes, however we may view the past, however improbable or unbelievable it may strike us, it was real to the people who lived it. In order to get at the truth as other people knew it, we need to collect beliefs as well as facts since myths that become sufficiently popular have a way of becoming accepted as the truth. Anyone who is past the age of 60 begins to realize that the long-range memory often is less impaired than the one that is expected to recall yesterday's events. On the other hand, memory is selective. Certain scraps of information are screened out, set aside, probably because they lack significance or relevance or utility. Some people seem to have little facility for retaining salient facts or significant details. Others incline, like the Bunker Hill veterans, to exaggerate or embellish, especially when recounting their own participation in an event. And we must not forget Wink's caveat to consider beliefs. So how can the verity of a source's information be assessed? Usually, it's possible to corroborate the credibility, if not all, the particulars tossed up from a person's memory by testing his or her account against those of other witnesses or reports in newspapers, magazines, journals, diaries, memoirs, broadcasts. If the source's story is unique, however, and unattested by other means, 
the only option is to make a judgment based on the individual's credibility and the logic or reasonableness of what he or she has to tell. It goes without saying that the wise interviewer will use a vivid recollection when it meets the test of plausibility but does not affect substantive conclusions. The past was real to the people who lived it, and in order to get at the truth as they knew it, we must collect beliefs as well as facts. Memory, we know, plays tricks, and I have encountered several distinct varieties of memory while writing history that is within recall by living people. I purposely omit the so-called photographic memory, which I suspect few of us possess, and certainly we may set aside the manufactured memory typified by the grandfather's tales of Bunker Hill. In quite a different class, however, are conflicting memories, stories told by eyewitnesses to or participants in an event that do not agree, even though the several parties present saw or heard the same things. Another category is what might be called the serendipitous memory, in which the historian makes a happy discovery entirely by accident, thanks to a question that happened to produce an unexpected answer. Closely related to it, but not quite of the same cloth, is what I'll term the unsolicited memory, a piece of information that comes out of the blue, totally unsuspected, because its very existence was unknown and therefore unsought. Okay, so from here in the article, the author goes on to review examples of this truth that memories are different from the experiences of different people with different viewpoints and that humans are fallible and forgetful. But this too is part of the story. He ends the article with this comment, quote, History, after all, is not simply what happened. It's also a memory of how it was, unquote. The end. This article speaks to me also of the need to gather history closest to the time it occurs and then to reflect by using primary sources in addition to memories. Wait too long, and if there's no local historical society, then all you have are uninterpreted bits and pieces of the past without the anchor of historical or scholarly reflection from the unique area where the history occurred. This is also relevant to what we're trying to tease out of our learned guests during Preservation Oaks interviews. We want guests to tell us the stories that are unique to the area and let listeners from across the world know what is special about the topic, the mission, organization, the area, and the lives of the people living there. Then we want to ensure people understand what the priorities of the society are and what funding they're getting to be able to address the current priorities. This way, people know how they can immediately help and make a difference, which I believe people want to do more than anything. They want to help with volunteering, membership, $5 or $10 a month, or whatever they can afford. Every little bit helps, and everybody feels good doing it. And now, here's a speech given by Don Ivey, the manager at the Center for the History of Family Medicine in 1991, and is entitled, What's the Value of History? What's the value of history? It's a question that I'm often asked, of what real relevance does history have in our lives today? In today's downsized, stressed-out, bottom-line world, it's a question worth asking. And the fact is that history is of tremendous value and importance to all of us, everywhere. History isn't just a collection of meaningless dates on a calendar and dusty old artifacts in cases. 
It produces a great deal of value, and it does indeed serve both a useful and a practical purpose. In fact, if anything, we need more historical museums, libraries, and archives in our country today than ever before. First off, let's acknowledge the invaluable services places like the Center for the History of Family Medicine provide by housing historical materials. The successes of the present day, after all, are built upon the achievements of the past, and in no other field of human endeavor is this more apparent than in the field of medicine. In the case of the Center, it's the only historical repository dedicated solely to preserving and sharing the history of family medicine in the United States. Each year, the Center helps family medicine organizations, physicians, educators, researchers, and members of the public with queries on a wide variety of issues and topics, the answers to which lie in no other place but the center. That information has educated doctors, residents, and students alike, saved both staff and management time and money by revealing best past practices, thus avoiding the dreaded reinvention of the wheel, and has even brought new knowledge, comfort, or closure to physicians and members of the general public alike. Seeking to know more about a medical topic, program, or even a relative, colleague, or friend. History also touches us in other more wide-ranging ways, but as these are so much a part of our lives now, we take them largely for granted. Examples of these are our many national holidays commemorating historical events and persons. Memorial Day, for example, pays tribute to all those servicemen and women who served our nation, among whom it should be noted, in every war and conflict this country has ever been involved in, were general practitioners or family physicians. Our nation's birthday is celebrated on July 4th, the adoption, not signing, of the Declaration of Independence, and Martin Luther King Day, Thanksgiving, and a host of other holidays are all derived from historical events as well. And let's not forget about religious holidays such as Easter, Christmas, and Hanukkah which are also derived from historical events. In fact, all of the world's major philosophies and religions are grounded in history. And finally, what about all the invaluable artifacts historical institutions collect, preserve, and display? Priceless documents like the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution, the very cornerstones of our government, or even our own family histories and genealogies, the stories of those who came before us. Where would any of this be without historical libraries, archives, and museums to collect, preserve, and share them? So there is simply no escaping it. History and the study of history have profound meanings and implications in the lives of virtually everyone on this planet, even if you're not a history buff. History is more, so much more, than just a collection of meaningless dates on a calendar and dusty old artifacts in cases. It's something very real and alive and meaningful to all of us. It is, in fact, one of the key things that helps to define us as a people, a nation, even as individuals and as human beings. For what ultimately separates us from the animals is our sense of self and our collective sense of the past. So now I ask you, what's the value of history? That was pretty good. Don Ivey is the manager for the Center for the History of Family Medicine, housed at AAF. This speech was given at the Center for the History of Family Medicine, located at 11400 
Tomahawk Creek Parkway, Leewood, Kansas, 66211. Their website is www.aafpfoundation.org backslash chfm and is administered by the American Academy of Family Physicians Foundation. So what did we learn from this? Well, here's a tip for super smart people out there. The more you learn about the history of the things you're interested in, whatever they may be, the smarter you'll be because you'll be solving problems with solutions that have been used successfully by other people before. You'll resolve the issues you face quicker than anyone else simply because you, quote, avoided the dreaded reinvention of the wheel, unquote. Now let's discuss the question, why are historical and preservation societies important to us today? I'll start with some examples of how society and the community benefit from historical and preservation societies. The first example is developing advocacy and values. Individuals can participate in activities that can change their communities for the better through historical and preservation societies. In this way, they can focus public attention on the history and uniqueness of the area that all people of the area participated in including marginalized and underrepresented people, issues, and views. Interested individuals usually begin by micro-volunteering for small amounts of time to learn more about the society. As they meet and interact with more like-minded volunteers and understand the organization's passion and mission, they contribute more of their time and talent. The second one is encouraging corporate philanthropy. Historical and preservation societies encourage for-profit companies to donate to a cause and engage in social improvement activities. Donations are tax-deductible to corporations who donate, and the receiving societies have tax exemptions in handling the provided funds, creating a win-win situation for both parties. The third one is economic contribution. Nonprofit organizations provide employment opportunities to the local community, and I might add, bring in a number of tourists, family history, genealogists, historians, and other researchers who spend money in the community. Research conducted by the Americans for the Arts revealed that nonprofit organizations in the arts and culture sector alone generates economic activity amounting to $166 billion a year. Historical and preservation societies embody the best values the human spirit can give. Through volunteerism and unflinching dedication to a cause, they give shape to the noblest goals and ideals society can enjoy. They also give people a chance to make a difference and create a better community for everyone. I encourage everyone to support these excellent organizations. Another reason historical and preservation societies are important to us today is their records collections. Primary source records of historical and preservation societies are another aspect of the value of these organizations. In addition to publishing journals and newsletters, maintaining website and social media sites, maintaining facilities, rentals, outreach, education, working with school children, and maintaining museums, historical societies curate and showcase their collections, research, and fields of study. It's been common practice to document and publish most dealings, and scholarly papers for the purpose of keeping records and educating members. Each society has totally unique collections of objects and documents. Each has primary source records that are unique to the area and to the history of the area the organization serves. 
I won't ever forget going into one historical society in New Jersey on the trail of an ancestor, and there was a journal of his from the 19th century they had in their archives. I put on the white gloves I was given and turned the pages of the artifact very gently under the supervision of the historical society volunteer. I can't adequately express the feelings that arose in me as I gazed on my long-dead ancestor's writing, which was still crisp and legible. There were notes with thoughts about this or that, and ideas, ideals, and values expressed throughout. I learned a great deal about my ancestor, the life he and his family led, and myself at the same time. It was marvelous. I pray quite often these days that other people, whether seeking ancestor stories or not, can have the thrill and emotion of experiencing their family or local history at least once in their lives. I often think about the shifts we've experienced in our country, in our local communities, and in our world since I've been on this earth. I think of how some of the shifts my ancestors' experience might have impacted them and what we can learn today about how to deal with these shifts in synchronicity with our American values. Think about the shift from mailing and waiting for letters to the telegraph and now instant messaging and email, or the shift from horse and buggy to automobile and trains. Think about the shift from no pain relief during operations and what that meant to soldiers and families to anesthesia. How about the shift from a higher risk of death upon breaking a limb to healing that broken limb without infection? Think about the shifts that have occurred in businesses and the laws passed to stop greed and graft, which are hallmarks of our way of life here in the United States. We, the people, govern ourselves by understanding and following our laws. Oftentimes, successful people are the ones having a firmer grasp of the law than others. If we come to a time when the law is no longer relevant to our needs, then we have civil mechanisms to legislatively change our laws. Yes, I know. It's sometimes difficult and frustrating to change the law we live by in this country. One has to get a majority of other people to agree with the change. And when you think about it, that's a good thing. Because during that process, people of all walks of life get to express their viewpoints about the consequences of the change on their lives. Often these consequences weren't considered when proposing the change. It really should be much more involved than just waving a magic wand to change the law, and then sitting back to see what happens to everyone impacted by it. Think about the shift from slavery to free people in every state. No matter their religion, their skin color, their sex, or other traits and beliefs. Think of how all these shifts manifested themselves in history and what kinds of policies and laws we put in place to govern ourselves according to our founding principles. It was hard. It was imperfect because we are. It was fraught with hurdles and challenges and terrible, horrible, nasty things that occurred on the journey. But thanks to the consistent efforts of our ancestors, we are making our way, and we are clinging to and aligning with our values. I'm positive of that. This is where historical and preservation societies come into focus. They hold the keys to maintaining our society for the good of all. They can remind us where we have fallen short in the past and present. They can remind us of our achievements and victories. Please support them with your donations by volunteering and joining these fantastic institutions all across the United States and keeping them strong. 
They can center your children on what's important, so they can also pass on our history as a nation in each unique part of the country. I'm not going to talk much about funding on this episode, other than to say two things. Number one is that by now, everybody listening should clearly understand what reasons there are to donate, donate, donate to historical and preservation societies. No matter where you came from to get to America, when you came here, or how you got here, those of you that are here are a part of the fabric of our country. We need your stories and your history. And there's no better way to do that than by working with and supporting your local historical and preservation society. And number two, I hope you'll all consider the importance of giving to lesser known or struggling historical and preservation societies. Your donations are tax deductible. Their success or failure is in our hands. Their ability to collect, preserve, and tell the stories of our local history depend on donations from the public and nowhere would your donation be more lasting than in this effort. On Preservation Oaks podcast, we're taking a journey from state to state across the United States to highlight museums, cultural heritage, genealogical, historical, and preservation societies. We steer clear of the most well-known societies and instead bring to your attention societies doing this work in areas that are lesser known, but no less unique and no less important than the well-traveled two institutions. We want our listeners to hear their stories and have an opportunity to learn about them and support them. We refer to them as our Preservation Oaks. Our Preservation Oaks institutions tell the stories from across America that you will truly never get anywhere else. I invite you to join us for each episode. We love getting your comments and thoughts. Send them to preservationoaks at gmail.com. If there's a historical preservation or genealogical society in your area and you're not already a member, please consider joining and supporting them. I hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable these societies are to the communities they serve and how important it is to support them. I know you'll agree that these societies do truly qualify as the preservation oaks of our American history. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Jesse Gallagher, Track Tribe, Scott Holmes, and Symbolbird. Microstream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by Microstream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of Microstream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. I'll see you on the next episode of Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life. <laughs>